Remember that last week, we began a section of Romans that doesn't fit with the chapters. So it's, it's chapter one. He's written an introduction, and now he's in the first chapter of his book. But chapter one runs from chapter one, verse 18, to chapter three, verse 20. So chapter two stuck right in the middle. You don't have the beginning or the end of the actual section. So glance back in your Bible. Romans chapter one can be found on page 939 of your pew Bible. And again, this series on Romans is a great time to start bringing your own Bible to church so you can get familiar with it. Glance back to chapter one, verse 18. This was the main idea from last week after Paul established what the gospel is. The gospel, to remind you, is that the seed of David, the son of David, has risen from the dead. He is risen. Alleluia. That's the introduction. But now chapter one of his thesis on what it means to be a Christian starts by saying, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You don't even need the rest of the book or rest of the the verse for what we need today. Just that point. What is Paul teaching us about right now in chapter two? The wrath of God being revealed against ungodliness. And now let's look at the last thing he says. Turn to chapter three, verse 20. Where he says, for by works, let's start at verse 19, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. So the wrath of God is being revealed so that all human mouths would be shut and we would have a knowledge of our sin. He is doing this by means of what Paul says here is the law. And the question, what is the law, is one that Paul is explaining in part, but in part, he never really explains it. He assumes you know. And he talks about this word law. It's namas in the Greek. He always uses this word, namas, but he uses it in multiple different ways. And what makes this even more difficult to deal with is that the word law, namas, is often used in the Old Testament to translate the word Torah. I want you to say that one. Say Torah. Torah. Torah can mean the first five books of the Old Testament. Everything Moses wrote, that's Torah. Torah can mean the Ten Commandments, the things you're supposed to do. That's also Torah. So the law, that is the Old Testament, contains the things you're supposed to do, the law. But because the whole thing is called the law, it also contains things like promises. And so when we talk about the Lutheran distinction between law and gospel, that is between law and promises, uh, it gets a little muddled. And Paul will actually go both ways sometimes in this text. And especially as we get to Romans chapter 7, he's going to use the word law like three or four different ways in two verses. 
And so if you get hung up on Lutheran law and gospel and shove it into every time he says law, you're going to mess up this text. And if you insist there's no such thing as Lutheran law and gospel, you're going to mess up this text. You with me on this? So this text is going to begin to give us, though, where Luther got this idea that there is a proper distinction between two things God says. One thing that is do this. It's the right thing to do. You should do this. If you do this, you will live. When you try, you find out you're going to die. And then he said, I'm going to save you from it. I'm going to save you from it by being your shepherd, by sending one born of the flesh of man, one born of the son of David, one who will conquer death. For Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So we're going to go verse by verse through chapter 2. But remember, this is telling us about the wrath of God being revealed against all mankind in the law, doing its work, which is to silence our mouths so that we will not believe we have any standing before God. So that if you still have chapter 3, verse 20 in your fingers, look at verse 21. So that now the righteousness of God can be manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. So he's setting up trust in the gospel above all other things, and he's trying to destroy any trust in yourself. And specifically now, he's speaking to Jewish Christians who, though they have become Christians, continue to believe they're better than non-Jewish Christians because they have the law, the Torah, And you might remember circumcision being a big fight that the early church had to deal with. And by the end of our chapter, in fact, he will mention circumcision. All right. So let's look at chapter two, verse one. We're going to go verse by verse through this thing as best we can. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Remember how he said, O man, in chapter one, two, he's talking to all humanity. He's talking to Adam and you are Adam. No matter what your name is, no matter what your tribe is, if you're a Japhethite, a Hamite, black or white, doesn't matter. You You are man. You are Adam. And you have no excuse. You could translate that as you have no justification. You have no defense. Every one of you who judges. Now, this is where he's going to lay out the real problem with mankind. The real problem with mankind is that we are wrongly judgmental. We set ourselves up as if we have the power of God to judge. You might remember our Lord famously says, judge not lest ye be judged. Unfortunately, many people looking to create licentiousness for themselves to be able to do whatever they want, they'll quote that verse as if Jesus said, there is no truth lest you would believe in truth or something weird like that. So you say, murder is wrong. They say, keep your laws off my body. (laughs) Laws off my body. That changed the last two years. Murder is wrong. Keep your laws off my body. Yeah? Judge not lest ye be judged. They're completely missing the point. Jesus is not saying that there is no judgment or that there is no truth. He's saying you don't get to be the judge. And so if you really want to understand what judge not lest ye be judged means, it means blame not, yes, lest ye be blamed. When you know the difference between good and evil, and you see someone doing evil, don't think you're better than them. Don't set yourself up and say, well, thank God I'm not like that person. But does that mean that you shouldn't tell your kids what right and wrong is? Not at all. 
tell your kids what right and wrong is. And especially in the Christian church, should we not hold ourselves accountable to what the true law is, what is good for us? And right now, again, we're in a war about what marriage is, what it means to be a man and a woman. Should we not pursue these things? Of course we should. But not as though simply because I'm married, I'm better than those who are not. Or let's say you're a person who struggles with temptation towards sexual immorality. Does that mean that you're not a Christian? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means work to be publicly good to each other according to what is good. You're not supposed to judge yourself in terms of righteousness based on anything you do, think, or feel. Because based on that, you lose. You die. Wrath. Okay? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Blame not, lest ye be blamed. We're not here to point fingers at others. We're here to confess our sins and repent, which is what he's going to be talking about in a few moments. Okay. You who judge, because you practice the very same things. He's going to say more about that. We know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. See, truth is still there. Judgment is still there. You know that an adulterer is, deserves what they get out of it. You know that. You know that a murderer deserves what they get out of it. But do you suppose, oh man, you who judge, think blame, think, think you're better than those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, you might say, well, I, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered. Yeah, but, but you've done a version of it. And you're part of the community in which it's happening. You're part of the mankind that does it. So if you're in your pew Bible, just turn the page back to chapter one again. Just one page over. Look at the bottom. Here's the list. You want to judge the person who's the homosexual. What about this list for you? Have you been covetousness? Have you had malice? Do you, are you having envy? Have you been involved with strife with people? Have you ever been deceitful? Have you ever slandered anybody? Have you ever realized you don't love God as much as you should? That's actually hating God. Are you ever insolent, boastful? Are you, all these lists here, right? So the moment you set yourself up and say, well, at least I'm not like that person, you condemn yourself by this list. You're still part of the darkness. When you judge as if we're the measure and the best of us is actually righteous, you're on the wrong scale. The only one who's actually righteous is Jesus. And the reason that the gospel is good news is because he's giving that righteousness to you without you achieving it, which is why you shouldn't think so highly of yourself. Yeah, think highly of Jesus. All right, so do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or same question, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? I believe in a God of grace. God is a God of grace. He loves everybody. And that's why we do whatever we feel like. Not knowing, rest of the verse, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Huh? So forgiveness is the seed of a new life. A life which fights against the works of darkness and fights against the flesh, particularly that work of darkness in your heart that hates your neighbor because you don't think they're as good as you are. We're supposed to be brought to repentance of that and all other things which cause division and dissension and animosity and hate and all that. Huh? We're brought to repentance. Repentance is a cool Greek word, metanoia. It means to change your mind, to change your mind, like literally to have your, your brain changed. You hear meta, actually, you know, Facebook wants to make meta famous. It's, it's a change, right? Um, metanoia, to change your mind, to have the mind of Christ. Verse five, but because of your hard and unpenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hard and impenitent heart. That is, you don't see that you're being saved. That chief of sinners, you are. That you are the one who has been been forgiven much. And so you need to love much. Now, who's he accusing? You specifically? Yeah, because he's accusing all of us. No one gets out of this. But there are those who only have this. Again, don't forget where we're going. This is talking about life under the law. This is talking about making your own excuses on judgment day. And he's telling us, not going to work out. Not going to work out. The righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. That's judgment day. Don't let any Lutheran tell you that you're not going to be judged on your works on judgment day. Everyone's going to be judged by their works. The question is, well, again, whose are your works? Are you coming in with just you? Or do you have another advocate with the Father? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who has done a work superseding your own. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, I don't think he's not talking about Christians there. I actually think he is talking about Christians. He's talking about Christians seeking Jesus. And you should know that you're going to have eternal life in Jesus. As opposed to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So while I do think verse 7 is about us, we should not consider ourselves to be those who seek immortality in Jesus and will find it. The section is talking about how on Judgment Day, works are going to be judged. And anybody who has done good is going to get good. Anyone who's done evil is going to get evil. The problem is no one's done enough good. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. No one but one has done enough good. So if you want to understand why St. Paul is able to say that the righteous will be justified by their works, it's because there's only one righteous and he is justified by his works. That Jesus Christ, the righteous one, rose from the dead on the third day by virtue of his perfect moral life. Of course, he's also God, so death cannot contain him. He achieved a perfect moral life, the cleansing of mankind's sin, because of his divinity. That doesn't mean he didn't achieve a perfect moral life that he now gives to you as a free gift. You follow me on this. So when it talks about justification by works, he means it. Lutherans don't dismiss that idea. We just realize that none of us are actually going to make it based on that idea. And we need this other righteousness that's going to come later when he preaches about who Christ has done, what Christ has done for us, right? But then verse 11, this is really key. For God shows no partiality. Mercy is not partiality. It's not, I'm going to wink at your sin, but not at your sin. Because you got the right bloodline, you got the right name, you got the right heritage, you got the right confessions, you got the right Bible. You don't get to have your sin winked at. 
And particularly that sin that leads you to look at your neighbor and judge your neighbor as if you're not in the same sinking ship. You're in the same sinking ship with the exception of being by faith alone in the ark who is Jesus Christ. But that's what drives you to the ark who is Jesus Christ. If you forget that you are in your body as a sinking ship, you're not going to need Jesus. And that's what he's writing to fight against. That any Christians would think of themselves more highly than they ought. And that instead we would realize we're in a battle between light and darkness. That the light isn't us, but he's shining on us. And so the light's coming through us now too. But we're not the source. We're not the source. Yeah. But to show no partiality, that means there is then, we're not going to say judge not lest he be judged means now do whatever you want. The law is still the law. Nature is still nature. A boy is still a boy. A girl is still a girl. And you need both if you want kids. And it's that obvious. It's that obvious. Huh? Now, verse 12, he's, again, remember, he's talking to Jews, yes? And he's trying to convince them that they're no better off based upon Torah alone, without Jesus, than anybody else is. So, all who have sinned without Torah, without the Old Testament, without the law, will also perish without the law. They already believe that. All the Gentile sinners are going to go to hell. And, he says, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So, oh, you Jews, you're going to be judged by something even more clear than this. Notice he also is introducing the word sin. He hasn't really talked about that much in the book so far. He's talked about unrighteousness and godlessness. Sin. It's, it's kind of a marvelous word. It just means to miss. To miss. I'm going to throw a stone over there, try to hit Jeff in the back, and oh, I, oops, I hit John. Oh, I sinned. Yeah, uh, I missed. And so those who miss without the law perish without the law. Those who miss under the law will be judged by the law. Miss what? Perfection which would be actual pure, everlasting love for your neighbor, which would mean you would never judge anybody. Not personally. Never throw blame on anybody else. Again, you can see how, how far we are from this. 4 verse 13, It is not the hearers of Torah, the law, who are righteous before God, but the doers of Torah, the law, who will be justified. All by itself, that sounds like Roman Catholic teaching, and it sure is. Problem is, it's at the front of the book, not the back of the book, and he's using it to condemn us so that we will believe we need a different kind of justification. Huh? But it's right. It is the doer of the good who will be justified, and there is only one who's done that, and the resurrection of Jesus proves it. Shouldn't be a problem, right? Although, again, people like to proof text. You know what that means? I'll just pick one verse and say it means everything, and nothing can disagree with that verse because I quoted the Bible, so shut up. Problem is, one verse alone isn't Scripture interpreting Scripture. It's not the whole Bible. You need the whole Bible. I, I've had this debate before with Baptists. It's a fun one for me. Like, and we're talking baptism, and I'll show them Acts 2, and I'll show them Romans 6, and I'll say, you should really look at all the verses about baptism, and you'll, you'll agree with me if you do. Write them all out on a page. See what they say, and you'll be like, wow, that sounds like what the Lutherans keep saying. And I've had them say to me in back, well, well, yeah, yeah, you got your verses. We got our verses. Faith alone saves. Wait, wait, wait. I got that verse too. So Lutheran's got all the verses. Heretics have like half the verses. That's why your, your effort as a Bible-believing Christian is not just to have a Bible verse. It's not just to be able to say, it says this, it says that. It's to know what they all mean together. Yeah. That's why we're doing this piece by piece here. 
Okay, so the doers of the law will be justified, but this is here to shut our mouths and have us confess we're not justified. That's why he's teaching this. Verse 14, for he's talking about now how the law is built into nature. When Gentiles who do not have Torah, that is the revealed law, by nature do what Torah, that is the natural law, what is right and wrong, requires, they are a law, a Torah to themselves, even though they do not have the Torah Old Testament revealed law. There's never been a culture where they don't stop murderers. Yeah, some guy kills his neighbor, the rest of the neighbors get around and they do something about it. Like this, it just happens. Why? Because it's obvious. It's wrong. Don't do it. There's never been a culture where you get to date some other guy's wife. I mean, not, not as a society. There are segments of society that collapse that do that. You don't get just to go take his wife. No one lets you do that. You can conquer someone, right? But, but no one says this is good. There's never been a culture where you just take people's stuff. And everyone's like, oh, that's cool. Thanks. Yeah, you took my stuff. It, it doesn't happen. We all know. We're a law unto ourselves because the law is just the way the world is made to work. Nature has an order to it. And it's so obvious, again, boy, girl, not boy, boy. Why, kids? Easy. It's easy. But we prefer our passions to what is good in nature. Everything's in upheaval. So we nonetheless, because we can't get away from this nature, we, verse 15, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He moved a long way in those two verses. So let's just kind of stick with, they show the law is written on their hearts. That's what I just kind of explained a moment ago, that when your kids have something that belonged to them. And one of them is got it sitting there and it's, it's mine. And someone else comes over and, and takes it. They scream, mine, mine, all louder because they know stealing's wrong. It's written on their heart. They don't know it's wrong for them to do it. They just know how to judge those who did it to them. That's the point again, isn't it now? You who judge because you do the same things. It's a great example from, from parenting. If you've never seen it, I'm sure most of you have. And those of you who haven't yet, you will. So the law is on our hearts. It's according to nature. And it's obvious to see if you want to just watch nature, you can figure out how it works. I'll give you a real good example. People love Buddhism. And one of the things they love about Buddhism is what Confucius taught that became part of Buddhism. And what Confucius taught was how the order of life works. And you know what? Like, he's mostly right. Like almost all of it, not, not everything about Buddhism is right, but Confucius kind of understood how civilization works. It's part of what's made Eastern Asia and Chinese culture so stable for so long. Well, how do you figure that out? It's because it's just the way it works. You don't need to have God tell you in a special vision with clouds. You can actually figure it out. Huh? And so again, it's on our hearts so that this is now judgment day talk while their conscience bears witness. It is right now you do something wrong, even though you tell everyone it was right, it was right. Why are you telling everyone it was right? Because your conscience is telling you it was wrong, right? Your conscience bears witness, conflicting thoughts that accuse or even excuse them. And he pushes this all the way to judgment day. So what judges you on judgment day is going to be your own heart. That was telling you all along, oh, I shouldn't have that, shouldn't have done that. You're like, yes, it's okay, it's okay. It'll be fine. I'll make up for it somehow. We did all the excuses we made. Uh So again, that just shows that we know. 
We know the law. We are rightly held accountable before God. But don't miss how at the end of verse 16, how is, he's gonna, how is God finally going to judge them? What's his real judgment? It's by who? It's by Jesus. He is risen. Hallelujah. There's almost no gospel in Romans chapter 2, but it's right there. That the judgment day ultimately is judged by the work of Jesus. Even though those who don't believe in him, those who don't look to him, will be accused by their own hearts on that day. Okay? Now, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, again, remember how I said this is about Jewish Christians. And it's really clear here. He's talking to them. If you call yourself a Jew, you say, I'm descended from Abraham. I'm descended from Judah. And so, therefore, I have a special privilege and status before God. So you then rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now again, that whole section is him talking to Jewish Christians saying, you can't say anything about yourself being better because you're a Jew. And if you do, you don't even realize the Old Testament says that you Jews are the reason God's name is blasphemed. That's a Jewish prophet saying about the Jewish people. And now he's applying it to them. Now, before someone goes and says, you anti-Semite, Pastor Fisk, uh, yeah, okay, you're not listening. But this does apply to us. Because he's not really talking just to Jews. He's talking to anyone who thinks that they just kind of are always going to be a Christian because they are. Because, you know, God likes me more than other people. He shows partiality to me. I'm special. And by that, they don't mean Jesus baptized me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Thank you, Jesus. They mean I'm special. And so if you think you're special because you got the name Lutheran on the church outside, I mean, God, you're really not paying attention if you think we're special. No one likes us. Oh, goodness. If you think you're special because you got the name Christian on your church, if you think you're special because you come to church every week, if you think you're special because you have a Bible or you got confirmed or once upon a time you went to Bible study, like all of it is don't you realize you're not special? Not by yourself, not alone, not without the word of God. And so if you got the word of God, why would you boast in how it taught you how to be better and how now you're good and not like those other people? Why wouldn't you instead boast in how he is risen? It's not that boasting is forbidden. It's boasting in yourself that is forbidden, and that is what the law, as your idol, will lead you to do. And again, you don't have to have the Ten Commandments to do this. You want to know what's wrong with veganism? It's a religion. That's what's wrong with it. They think they're better than you because they don't eat animals or use their products. That is arrogance, and it will lead to their destruction. What's wrong with environmentalism? And the idea that somehow we're going to create an earth where nobody dies. Again, it's all a form of religion. And it's all based on if we do this, then we'll be better than those people who don't do this. That's why those who recycle look down their nose at those who don't. 
It's not that recycling is wrong. It's that when you put your hope in the law, no matter what law it is, even if you just made it up, you will use it to condemn others. And in so doing, you condemn yourself. So if you really would be an instructor of babes, light in the darkness, a teacher of those who are blind, then it's not about going out and saying, hey, guess what, everybody? We found the right way to live. It's about going out and saying Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And he's establishing that point like in the ground, right? In the ground. For circumcision, remember I said it's, it's going to be about the debate about circumcision. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Uh, there's no word uncircumcision in Greek. That's us trying to be Victorian in the translation. There is a word circumcision. And it means to kind of circle and cut. Uh, and then there is the word foreskin, which is what the word uncircumcision means here. Okay. And I always get a little hesitant about this, but I've been challenged to not be afraid of teaching you what the Bible says. So I'm trying to. Now, the debate here again is that the Jewish people who have circumcision, the removal of foreflesh from the man's most male body part, is a sign given to Abraham that from Abraham's actual body part, the seed who is Jesus will come. And so all his descendants are to do this to their body parts to confess that they are set apart from the rest of the world for Jesus to be born among them. And then Jesus himself, keeping that Torah built into the Old Testament covenant law at Sinai on the eighth day, himself has his body part made to bleed with flesh removed in order to fulfill the righteousness of God. Now see how this is actually about his death. How he was made to bleed so the flesh would be removed and the righteousness of God would be fulfilled. But the reason he was worthy to be slain is because he did indeed keep the Old Testament law. So it's right. You, uh, uh, circumcision is of value if you obey the law. It was of much value to Jesus. It was his obedience to, G to God. And in that then is part of his resurrection, which is why, again, now jump with me here. This is kind of a big leap. You women included are circumcised. You men, I don't know whether you are or not in terms of the hospitals, but you are circumcised. How? In Jesus. When you eat his flesh and drink his blood, what do you get? All of him. All of him. His whole body, right? And all the blood in him. It's all one thing. Don't get into like, is it his finger bone or something like that? The point is, you have all of Jesus. And so because he's circumcised on the eighth day, a Jew of Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, keeping all the law righteously, now you are one with him. That's why a Christian doesn't need to be circumcised. Not as a sign. It's already happened. It's done. Here it is. Eat Jesus. Now, Colossians chapter 2 will show you that baptism gives you this same promise and that baptism is the circumcision made without hands. That is, it is the promise for your heart to believe that you're in Jesus now. Again, to receive all that Jesus has done. And so again, this debate about circumcision and whether we need it or not is fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what he wants us to understand. So then, as a result of this now, verse 26, 
if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, now he's talking about believes and seeks good, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code, hear the word letter there, the letter, and circumcision but break the law. So, so I've met... I've met Hebrews, I've met Muslims who say, I, I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim, I'll never eat pork. But then they go and do a bunch of other stuff their religion says not to do. And what he's saying here is basically a, a righteous pagan who eats all the pork in the world, but loves his wife, doesn't steal from his neighbors. On judgment day, even though he'll be cast in the fire, his level of hell will be not as bad as the one who says, oh, I, I've been circumcised, I'm good to go. That person has more wrath and will be judged by the other because the other has at least understood the law of nature. That's his point here again. So the signs of the old covenant mean nothing without Jesus. And the law does you no good if you don't keep all of it, if you're relying on it for salvation. Does that mean the law isn't true? No, it's still true. Still good to love your neighbor as yourself. It just can't save you and much less can your circumcision. Because verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Now, we're not done. It goes all the way to verse 20 in chapter 3, but we're not going to go that far. We're going to zoom in here on this idea of spirit and letter for our remaining time, emphasizing again that the law being written on our heart is not sufficient to save us. Our heart needs to be circumcised. It needs the flesh cut out of it. It needs to be made to bleed again and not be made of stone as spiritually it is. That is, it needs to be born of the spirit of God. And the letter that is a rule, a code, will not do that. Instead, you need the actual God to just do that. And this is what baptism does, but not by the water. You say baptism, everyone thinks it's about the water. There's definitely water involved, but the water does not do anything other than sit there connected to God's word that is the activating ingredient. Can I call it that? The source of power is the word of God. So the word in and with the water is a lavish washing of regeneration. But it is the word that is the spirit's work that's there. Not so you can say, well, I'm baptized. I can do whatever I want now. It's there so you can say, I believe in Jesus. Jesus has chosen me to stop being evil. And even though I know of my nature, I can't. I'm going to try anyway because it's better for my neighbor. And he's going to bring us all to a place where that's what we're going to be like. Our confidence will be that he brings us to a world in which innocence and righteousness and blessedness is all we ever know. So, but this this bit about spirit and letter now, though, it's code language for law and gospel. The spirit is the gospel. The letter is the law. The spirit is the promises. The letter is what you're supposed to do. He doesn't say much more about it here, but he does go into detail on it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. So I'd like you to turn there. First and second Corinthians come right after the book of Romans. 
You're looking at page, I believe, 965 is where we're going to be starting in. Oh, I threw a card over here that I need to grab. So this whole section is going to be about the spirit and the letter or about the replacement of the old covenant by the new covenant. Let's start at verse 2 of chapter, well, let's start at verse 1 of chapter 3. He, he asks, in a completely different context, Paul is dealing with mostly uh, Gentile Christians, Greek Christians, and so he doesn't have this issue of, of, of Judaism, except for that there have come some in who are beginning to teach like a super level of Christianity, like there's Christians and then there's real Christians. And the real Christians have super spiritual powers. They even call themselves the super apostles. And they teach that Paul isn't really an apostle. So Paul is defending his apostleship to the church in this. And this next bit is about, you know, kind of, a, he's mocking them a little bit. Chapter three, verse one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, right? Do I have to boast about me? He's asking. Like, I, Paul planted this church, by the way. There'd be no Christians if he hadn't converted them all. He's like, do, do I need to commend myself to you? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So these, these super apostles come in like, well, look, I have a letter from this guy. He says, I'm special. Right? He said, do, do I need that? Really? Now, notice how he dropped the word letters in here, though. He's going to play on that. He's going to keep running with that all into our, our concept we've been talking about. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Right? So I planted you as a church. I converted you as Christians and you're still in my heart. I actually care more about you than about what you think about me. And you show, verse 3, that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Sound familiar? Same kind of idea here. But now there's two types of letters he's just introduced. He's introduced letters written on stone and letters written on human hearts. From there, he's going to use the word letter to refer to the Ten Commandments, the law, the stone. And he's going to use the word spirit to refer to the human heart that has been made to believe by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, such is our confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything. That's Romans chapter 2 in a nutshell. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter that is not written in stone, that is not the old covenant, that is not the Ten Commandments, that is not law, but of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, who is sent upon the world by Jesus Christ through knowledge of him. For the letter, that is the law, kills, but the Spirit, that is the good news about Jesus, gives life. Someone might say, but why is the Holy Spirit the good news about Jesus? Isn't the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit? It's like, you don't understand at all, do you? Like the Spirit's not out there to be a different God than Jesus. They are, he is, they are one God, different persons. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in order to bring you to faith in the Son. So the Holy Spirit doesn't show you the Holy Spirit. 
He makes your unbelieving heart believe in Jesus. You don't really get to feel that like it's Holy Spirit. You can just kind of look at your unbelieving heart and be like, wow, I believe in Jesus. That's impossible. That is the Holy Spirit. And that comes again by the news that he is risen. Hallelujah. By way of reminder, Romans 1, before we got to verse 18, established that. That the gospel, the good news, is the son of David is risen from the dead. That message written on your heart by God's spirit brings life. Whereas the message of do this, don't do that, even though it's true, even though it's good, it brings death. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death, that's the law, carved in letters on stone, that's the Ten Commandments and the Old Covenant, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Do you remember how he comes down off the mountain and his face is shining? And they're like, like, hide that thing, man. We don't want to look at it. He wore a veil over his face whenever he would go out from the tabernacle of meeting because they couldn't bear to look at Paul's going to say in a moment, the gospel. They couldn't take the gospel. They wanted to hide it and have the law instead. But there was so much glory there in the coming of the law. His point now is, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Everyone said, oh, I want to see God. Show me a pillar and fire. If he'd come down and talk to me, then I'd believe. Paul says there's more glory now in this meal. And that water, in believing without sight, think of John 20 and Thomas. There's more glory there than in a bunch of fire. Anybody can do fire, in a sense, yeah. For, verse 9, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. That's why Sabbath worship and food rules and other stuff from the Old Testament, anybody who wants to put their hope in that, they have no glory at all. Circumcision has no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, because he is risen. Hallelujah. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. His resurrection is such that the entire future that we have in the resurrected world is permanent. Permanent, not passing away. Verse 12, since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they, he's talking about the Jews, read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Now, sadly, he's not just talking about the Jews. There are plenty of Christian groups these days or those who call themselves Christians who read the Old Testament without Christ. And the veil lies over their hearts and faces too. We don't have that veil because Christ has been revealed as our Savior and we know that, that the Old Testament points to him. And the point here is, then we have hope. Then we have confidence. Let's close by going down to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Right? We don't judge you even if what we tell you is that what you're doing is wrong. We do that as a brother, as a servant, as a friend. But we don't proclaim ourselves. For God said, God who said, verse 6, 
let there be light, excuse me, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts, that's the ministry of the Spirit, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the whole issue is about attributing your value to yourself rather than seeing that God has attributed value to you in Christ Jesus. Does this mean you have no value? You should walk around saying, I'm a shameful wretch, blah, blah, blah. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. No, 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 no. You're still a neighbor. You're still a son. You're still a daughter. You're still a father. Maybe you're really good at baking cookies. That's all fine. It's okay to be proud of what's good as long as it doesn't mean you think others are bad. Take pleasure and confidence in what you love to do that's good according to nature. But don't blame others, even if they deserve it. Because to do so is to forget that you have more blame in your back pocket than they do. And then in this, boasting in Christ, love the life that you have right now. Seek to fulfill the law, not because it will justify you, not because it's going to give you something, but because it's just good. It's just good. One of my favorite quips from Luther is that God doesn't need your good works. I mean, he's God. What is he? he doesn't need nothing. He prepared your good works for you to do them. He gave you everything you could ever do with them. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. That's why God's like, do good works. Not for me. Stop handing them up to me as if I didn't make it all. And I don't need to save you from what you made of it. But while I'm saving you, would you stop killing? Would you stop stealing? Would you get married and have some kids and believe that that's what I made the world for? For each other. Again, Romans 2, in the middle of teaching us about how the law and the wrath of God is here to stop our mouths in God's sight, should open our mouths as a community to pursue what is good in the knowledge that all of us have had the final price already paid in the blood of Jesus. And that even our worst enemy and the unbeliever down the street has also been bought with that same price. And so if we would be teachers of the foolish, light in the darkness, well, again, then we're going to talk about him. He is risen. Alleluia. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer.